Clayton Thomas Mueller is an organizer, facilitator, public speaker, and author focused on fighting for environmental and economic justice. He's worked for more than two decades in support of grassroots movements and indigenous peoples to defend against the unrelenting onslaught of the fossil fuel industry, and maybe most strenuously, against the death-dealing pipelines, refineries, and extractive projects associated with the Canadian tar sands. He's a campaigner for 350.org, has worked with the Indigenous Environmental Network, Black Mesa Water Coalition, Global Justice Ecology Project, and Bioneers. I had the opportunity to talk to him about his memoir, Life in the City of Dirty Water, which you might have heard about as part of this year's Canada Reads competition, or because it's an absolutely brilliant book. In caring, luminous prose, Clayton writes in the book about his growth into the climate activist and storyteller that he's become. A phrase that comes up a couple of times in that book is this idea of having a PhD in hustle. I asked Clayton about that way of phrasing it and he talked about how the book is partly about showing how he's seized multiple opportunities to acquire new knowledge, but without thinking of that knowledge as a commodity. Instead, for him, it's about applying knowledge, not just forming theories. Applying knowledge means actually trying to do the work of building community. On this point, he talks about his work as a youth organizer, where he's always aspired to make any form of outreach inspiring by ensuring that it's culturally relevant. One of the spaces where he's had to hone these skills is in the prison system. We talk about how he writes in the book about getting sick of the strategic violence used in prisons to keep incarcerated people, and especially the disproportionate number of racialized people in prison, subservient through fear. Fed up with the calculated production of division and fomenting of violence in the system, Clayton decided to form bonds that would protect himself and other indigenous kids from being abandoned to harm. The title of his text, Life in the City of Dirty Water, has thrown some people off, he says. People assumed from the title that the book is only about what he calls his day job as an environmental activist and water protector. So Thomas Mueller, as a member of Treaty 6 Matthias Coulomb Cree Nation, also known as Puckatawagan, located in northern Manitoba, is really making a very specific reference to Winnipeg with that title. The Cree and Ojibwe name for Winnipeg translates as murky water or muddy water. I asked him about some of the resonances, though, with that title and how it can open up conversations, reflections about the murky nature of political and environmental communication in our moment of catastrophic climate change. He emphasizes that the goal of his memoir is really to encourage readers' own interpretations, to agitate and create, and to just make people think. Because as he puts it, there is no one answer to colonial violence and climate collapse. He says ultimately that it will take a quote, hybrid mix of Western science, traditional ecological knowledge, and straight up magic to pull ourselves out of the dire and desperate mire of capitalist accumulation and fossil fueled modernity. The greed we see naturalized today, he feels, is by no means natural. It's a sickness and the product of disconnection from nature. The alienation we feel is a thing that derives directly from this uprooting. It breeds, he says, hyper-individualism, hyper-consumerism. And so he looks to unite people, quote, 
on the jagged intersections of our movement goals and our social movement sectors to break down barriers and build up systems of accountability and transparency as we build the largest social movement in the history of humankind. We start the conversation by talking about the book's involvement in the strange spectacle of the Canada Reads competition. He admits that while it's been a blessing to have the book gain a broader audience because of Canada Reads, it was nonetheless super weird to be included, especially since the book is just one piece of a bigger, three-dimensional transmedia storytelling universe. There is a lot to be said about just the power of pushing people to engage with these texts through a thing like Canada Reads, but Clayton notes that one of the missing pieces this year was that while there was a rich diversity of books and experiences represented, there weren't any texts that talk about, quote, the white person taking responsibility for white privilege and systemic racism. In the face of that absence, he asks the pointed question, where's the deeper conversation about the demographics of our population in this country? Where's the conversation about the distribution of power, privilege, resources, land in Canada? And when will we have that conversation? Thanks so much for, for setting aside some time uh, to talk about this book that is is about healing. It's a memoir uh, of healing. And in a lot of ways, I wanted to like kind of center on that that concept, that struggle for health in a world that is um, so incredibly toxic in, in many ways. Um, and and the like all of the different ways that the book is trying to think about health. Um, but the first thing I wanted to ask about is this sort of this, uh, you know, first move of the book in a sense where, you know, you're actually starting life in the city of dirty water with a note from your mother um, yeah. who, you know, stresses in in that letter that stories have to be told from the lens of the person that experienced them. Um, you know, I thought that was an incredible way to frame the whole book by having the voice of your mom conveying all of your strengths, saying that you're a gift, but also saying that authenticity in storytelling is really rooted to a person, to to the to the voice of the person that's telling it. And, you know, it's something you've talked about in a few different places, like why you wanted to make your mother's voice so fundamental to the book. Yeah. To kind of like cherish her as she's clearly cherishing you in that in that opening letter. But I wondered if you could just talk about how you feel your mom's sense of the importance of authenticity frames the book with its, you know, like unwavering commitment to like radical honesty. Well, you know, I, I felt it was really important, um, you know, as a central theme um, to my memoir to lift up this concept of asking for permission. You know, this idea of building out a culture of consent in this crazy, you know, super toxic, as you had mentioned hyper toxic kind of masculine dominated world that we live in right now. And, you know, I asked my mom for permission to tell my story because our lives are so greatly intertwined. You know, she was just a child when she had me here in the city of Winnipeg, 16 years old and got flown here, you know, by, by, by the system. You know, she was a teenager when she got pregnant and social worker that she talked to, told her to come to Winnipeg because a life on the reserve as a single mom in the seventies would have been very challenging mm -hmm. for both of us. 
And so she came to Winnipeg with the promise of a greater life, greater opportunities for herself and for her unborn kid. And, um, you know, our, our, our experiences, both good and bad and everything in between have been very much shared. And so I really, really wanted to ask the person who had the greatest influence and impact in my life, my ma, for her consent to tell my story, because so much of it is wrapped up in hers. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the end result, of course, was the beautiful introductory letter mm-hmm. that readers can listen to at the beginning of Life in the City of Dirty Water, you know, the words of my mother. Yeah, and I like that you say, uh, listen to, right? Um, because, you know, the the story really, in some ways, um, you know, begins as this kind of oration, right? That's the kind mm-hmm. of gener- genesis of it. Um, I find that kind of incredible. And I guess, you know, since you gestured to Winnipeg, uh, you know, a place I've, I've, I've never visited, to be honest, I wanted to ask about the book's title, um, yeah. you know, like in, in relation to this idea of, you know, the, and also in relationship to the genesis of the book, right? So, mm. you know, the, I guess the Cree and Ojibwe name for Winnipeg translates as murky water or muddy water. Uh, you don't tell the reader this until toward the end of the book. Um, <laughs> and I didn't know it, but, you know, while I was reading the book. So my interpretation of the title went right to like water contamination, actually, this yeah. really dire problem that afflicts, especially indigenous communities. Um, but not just indigenous communities. And I started thinking about the, after, you know, uh, uh, reading the translation, I started thinking about all of the ways that your book is actually like using the concept of murkiness of being made to feel dirty. Mm. Racism is in fact, this force that you frequently say gets experienced as a dirtiness, a shamefulness, Mm -hmm. uh, by those that are subjected to it. Yeah. Um, I know the book was the result of a long process uh, that you actually wrote a version of it first that you didn't feel you could publish. Mm-hmm. Um, and that this version is the direct result of working on the short documentary that you made with Spencer Mann. Mm-hmm. Um, did the title originate with the film? And was there an attempt to keep the title kind of deliberately open-ended? Did you mean for it to be first and foremost, uh, like a direct reference to Winnipeg? Or was it more like literary in some ways? It's really kind of funny, eh? Because I, you know, before the book dropped, and when we started building up the hype around, you know, the memoir and its release last August, um, it was really funny to me, you know, friends that just shared the link without reading any descriptors or anything, because most mm-hmm. people gravitated towards, you know, my day job, which is, you know, I work for the Global Climate Organization, three hundred and fifty org, but I have a long history working in the environmental justice movement and, you know, uh, us, you know, like many of us indigenous peoples carry the title as a water protector. And, um, (laughs) but yeah, it was pretty funny seeing Mm -hmm. a lot of people share, Oh, our, you know, our colleague Clayton Thomas Mueller is publishing a book on water protection, you know, or fighting to protect the sacredness of water. (laughs) Really it was, you know, just a, a very specific reference to the term Winnipeg, which means, you know, murky water or muddy water, because here in Winnipeg, of course, this is where the mighty Red River and the Assiniboine River meet at the historical uh, heart of our city, the the Forks. And, uh, you know, of course, both rivers have muddy bottoms and you can't, Mm -hmm. you know, they're not clear. You can't see into them. (laughs) Right. Um, And yeah, yeah, I, I like that as an author, like it is this very specific thing 
that then can has all of these different sort of reverberations. Mm. I guess I'm like interested in um, the impact that you see the book making like here in, in Canada um, and, and what it meant to have your book included in the Canada reads competition. Like you've mentioned in a few places that you, you prayed to participate in this kind yeah. of an, annual event, but I'm guessing that it was like a little bit strange on some level to be included in something called Canada reads, <laughs> like <laughs> taking part, you know, it, it expanded the audience. I have to think for the book, but you know, the, and, and maybe you, I don't know, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but maybe you feel like. Canada reads can be something subversive that like it can undo maybe some of the myths of kind of Canadian national identity that still persist in settler culture. Mm -hmm. Um, Like there's this yellow knives, Dene scholar, Glenn Coulthard, who once said in an interview that for him, the issue of settler indigenous relations in Canada is a treaty question, but not a conventional treaty question where indigenous nations and these big hedge, I'm quoting him, these big hegemonic institutions of the state relate to one another. He says, it's more about, relationships between peoples and communities right. and how we can draw insights from each other's practices and traditions. Did you, do you think like the space of Canada reads can contribute to that sort of coming together in a relationship? And was it weird at all to be included? It was like super weird for sure. <laughs> right. um, but, you know, as I had mentioned um, in other conversations I've had about the memoir with media um you know, when I started this process uh, of life in the city of dirty water, this storytelling project, you know, because the book is one thing, but you know, it, you know, what we, what my team and I developed was a massive three-dimensional transmedia storytelling universe that has about forty mm-hmm. vignettes of you know uh, unique stories uh, that range from one to five minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, stories that aren't in the book or the short documentary, which lives on CBC Gem. Um, we're developing out podcasts with, uh, people, you know, who I shared my life's journey with thus far, um, who reflect on memories that I write about in the book. And, um, you know, even if they're counter and, you know, intuitive to the memories I have of the same moment. Um, so there's lots of ways moving forward that life in the city of dirty water will continue to like exist and kind of persist and be this kind of, you know, beautiful storytelling you know, kind of piece representing the city that I grew up in. Um, but, you know, the, 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 the book itself, though, poses the 60,000 foot question. What is it going to take for us all to heal from the violence of colonialism? You know, and specifically, I think more, more pointedly, what is it going to take for indigenous men to heal, you know, from the violence mm-hmm colonization to move forward in a good way, you know, and all the roles that were stripped away from indigenous men through the process of colonialism. And, you know, and I think that that for me, it was a shocker when I got the call, like, it was really funny, actually, my publicist from Penguin um, sent me a note before Christmas, I guess, and, 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 and was like, Hey, yeah, you you got this um, CBC reached out. They want to do a fluff piece on life in the city of Dirty Water. Should be just a short 10-minute interview. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay, that sounds great. No problem. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so I log into the Zoom link and right away, I'm like, what the hell? And my publicist is on the call. My editor from Penguin is on the call, Nicholas. And, 
um, and like four other people. And I was like, well, this is a lot of people for a fluff piece. What's up, folks? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, the representative of CBC Canada Reads, like the Ogie Mao over there, the boss kind of said, well, this is our favorite part of, 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 of our jobs and kind of jumped me essentially and said, you know, we want to let you know that your book has been selected as one of the short list of the Canada Reads competition and kind of everything, the gravity of the moment there just kind of pulled me deeper into my chair. And they said, we can't tell you who your champion is at this point. They were very secretive about the process. They said, but, you know, we want to let you know and, you know, we want to book your time a few months out from now so we can do some media and hmm. uh, get ready for the competition. And then we'll introduce you to your champion. And it was like a whole process, right? Kind of very, yeah. very like Hollywood, very like exciting. And it's um, pretty cool, I guess. But yeah, weird. And I, <laughs> and I got super emotional, you know, and I, yeah, yeah. I definitely teared up. And I, and, and I, I just, I told, I told them flat out, I said, you know, I prayed about this when I started writing this book. I said, I, like seven years prior, hmm. I prayed them because I've been a Canada Reads fan. Like a lot of people that live here in these lands, they call Canada for you know some time now. I mean, the competition's been around for over twenty years, mm-hmm. and um, you know I have friends yeah. that have been in the competition and um, as authors, and so yeah, you know it was a big deal. And and Dr. Suzanne Samard, you oh, know what a uh, what a champion. Yeah, you know she's 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 awesome. I mean. It, you know, like, like I knew her already, you know, she mm-hmm. had spoke at the Bioneers conference, which I've been on, you know, on the board of Bioneers for about 20 years now. It's the biggest environmental conference in the United States, California mm-hmm. every year. And um, so she spoke about her work, you know, um, identifying elders of the forest and, you know, identifying how grandmother trees in the forest actually take care of up and coming, you know, grandchildren in under the mm-hmm. canopy and how they communicate through a network, a sophisticated network, much like the mycelium networks that Dr. Paul yeah. Stevens talks about. Um, they have their own internet um, in ways that they can, you know, share uh, uh, nutrients and, you know, all kinds of incredible things that, quite frankly, indigenous peoples have, you know, known <laughs> and maybe taken for granted for millennia right. um, to have a non-native, you know, uh, uh, you know, PhD level, you know, you know, best-selling author, um, you know, noted ecologist, you know, kind of take a look at my very rugged memoir and, you know, some of the native knowledge that I share in it. And, um, you know, to lift this up as something that that the that the whole country should read. It was very humbling. And mm-hmm. I was very, very, you know, thankful, you know, big shout out to Dr. Suzanne Samard. If she hears this podcast, you know, really appreciated her picking life in the city of dirty water. But, you know, the dynamic was difficult. I was the first book knocked out of the competition. And I wasn't surprised because, mm-hmm. you know, it's very difficult. And, and I see the same thing within um, the whole online book review culture and, and community. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of people have a hard time, you know, giving a star grading to a personal memoir versus a fictional book, um, you know. And and so I think that it was awkward maybe for, for the debates, um, you know, for folks not to, you know, like, like to, to, 
Mm. It's not a fiction. It's my life story. You know, it is what it is. Um, So I think that, you know, and I even heard a lot of people, you know, express that, that, yeah, trying to compare a memoir Mm. to a a, a fictional book is is challenging, especially when the whole country's watching you online and on TV. It's interesting to think about like why they wouldn't be seen though as compatible, like to actually kind of like dig into it a little bit because like um, it's still written, it's still creative, it's still full of ideas, but there's something about the, you know, the authenticity of it versus like the sort of artificiality as it were of like a lit- an overtly literary novel that yeah is harder to defend. And yet I think Samard took like a really smart approach to saying like, this is not just one person's story. This is actually um, an articulation of like a path forward. It's, it's about like, you know, trying to imagine a way out of our current crises. And, and, you know, I was convinced certainly like that, that for that reason, it is this like invaluable text. Um, (laughs) I've spoken to one other person, uh, Francesca Equiasi, Mm. who competed in Canada reads uh you know she she wrote butter honey pig bread this like gorgeous novelistic kind of but still based in her own story kind of yeah. uh, account of coming from Nigeria and and finding community in food and um drugs and politics and conversation um mm. and you know her experience was similar where the champion that she had she she had this deep sense that you know that mattered kind of more than winning that, you know, she had already won in some ways by having, um, you know, this particular champion who also cared about food in the same way. So I I hear some of the same stuff. Well, two Um, things, you know, just on this topic um, Mm -hmm. of of Canada Reads, um, you know, I didn't pray to win the competition, you know, that'd be like Mm -hmm. praying to win bingo, you know, it's kind (laughs) of not cool. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, I did pray that it would be a part of that competition so that, you know, the the words that I shared, the stories and experiences that I shared, that it could reach the broadest audience possible. And by broadest, I mean outside of the Indigenous community, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I really wanted this to be something that could be, you know, in every school library and, you know, be a part of curriculum, you know, from K to 12, all the way, you know, into post-secondary, which Mm -hmm. it is already. Um, you know, and, and I feel very thankful about that. My challenge with the, the entire Canada reads like composition of, of, of like all of the final shortlist this year was, you know, you had a book about, um, the migration of, uh, you know, uh, someone representing the Islamic community and that experience, mm-hmm. you know, you had a book, uh, 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 representing the diversity of an inner city Toronto elementary school, you know, with, with Brown and black and indigenous kids, all a part of the beautiful story of Scarborough. And, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, there was just this rich, you know, uh, diverse grouping, you know, you got Michelle good, um, you know, and her five little Indians, which ended up winning the competition, you know, which I was very, very pleased about because it's such an excellent book. And Michelle is such a, just a wonderful Cree leader and storyteller. And of course, Washington black, you know, Mm. um, which is this powerful story coming out of the black community. And, you know, my big, my big criticism of the whole thing is, was where was the, you know, where's the, 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 the book in that grouping. That's the book about the white person taking (laughs) responsibility for Mm. white privilege and systemic racism. Um, you know what I mean? It mm-hmm. felt a little bit, um, uh, uh, what's that word? Um, virtue, virtue, uh, signalish. 
to me right on a mass scale you know right 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 it's like look at the multiculturalism on display here you know cbc it, kind of patting itself on the back a little bit exactly exactly yeah. but but you know like where's the book about how you know the 80% of canadian citizens uh who are you know happen to be white presenting you know there's 11% i think black um 5 to 7% are represented by brown and black brown you know migrant people southeast asian you know and mm -hmm. on and on and then you got about 5% first nations inuit and metis across the country um and that's why you know whether it's the topic of truth and reconciliation or ending police violence against blacks and native people and other brown people um, and on and on, you know, these problems continue to persist um, because mm -hmm. until racism becomes a, and colonization becomes a problem in the white community in this country, um, you know, we're going to see a lot of the same patterns kind of continue on forward, regardless of how, mm -hmm. um, you know, if, we're running our economy on oil or wind turbines, you know, if we don't change systemic racism, um, we're going to have the same land use problems, um, mm -hmm. you know, colonization in a neo-colonial form occur and on and on. And so that was my big thing about Canada Reads as I sat and watched the champions defend all five of these incredible books mm -hmm. and authors. I was like, Where's the deeper conversation about the demographics of our population? You know, where's the conversation about the fact that, you know, Indigenous women represent over 50% of the population now in the federal prison system? Um, you know, like, and, yeah. you know, meanwhile, we we represent less than 5% of the population. Is that because we're inherently evil? I don't think so. It's because of systemic racism and, you know, mm -hmm. Uh, legacy issues related to not dealing with colonialism and all of its faucets, including Indian residential school. And, right. uh, you know, especially in this time, you know, you know, well, Canada reads happened, you know, we were discovering these unmarked graves, you know, now which number over 10,000, um, you know, and, um, so yeah, that, that, that part, I was like, I wish we could have gone a little deeper, but, mm -hmm. um, I think that all five champions did a really good job. I mean, that yeah, that's an incredible point in a lot of ways. Just like the, where's the conversation about um, the kind of white complicity in settler violence? You know, it's just yeah. it's not there. So the, it kind of, you know, feels a little bit like tokenism without that piece. And I that's, you know, th there's so much in the book that I want to you know, ask you about, um, mm -hmm. but you, you know, you were talking about prisons in particular, and, and there is a lot in the book about the prison system. Yeah. I, um, I spoke recently with, um, the authors, the editor and two authors from a, a new book called, um, disarm, De defund, dismantle on police abolition in Canada. And this is the thing that that book gives us is this really, um, to use a prison metaphor, like panoptic view of how prisons operate in Canada. And one of the things they say is that there has been historically this, as they put it, like carceral continuum where it does begin, you know, it, you have residential schools, you have the use of the R RCMP to impose kind of strategic violence and that like persists in the present. And your book is also trying to like talk about how, um, you know, there is this kind of carceral continuum. You, you say that, in prison, on page 55 of the book, you say you struggled to keep your humanity because people treated each other so horribly and explain that, like, 
you learn how rigged the system is against Native people. Um, but what you also say is that prison politicized you, that, you know, while working in prisons was really difficult, you know, because of just the kind of, you know, energy and the violence that was mm -hmm. ubiquitous there, it is also something that kind of radicalized you and prepared you for the climate struggle. Yeah. Um, I see that as so incredible. I mean, like it's something that you really end the book in some ways with this idea that when things seem irredeemable, there's an underlying decency that we can count on. Um, mm -hmm. You know, where did you, how did you find um, hope in prison um, and, and we, you know, how do you now kind of link those two things, the kind of yeah. struggle against mass incarceration, racist mass incarceration, and maybe use a struggle for like climate reparations and, and divestment from fossil fuels? Yeah. <clears throat> well, I think that, you know, it's twofold. Um, you know, I think directly through my own experience as a juvenile, having getting in trouble with the law. Um, and ending up uh, incarcerated in a juvenile detention facility in British Columbia during the 90s. You know, this was, uh, this was uh, you know, a very profoundly, like, life-altering experience for myself. Um, you know, going to juvie, turning, turning 17 in juvie. And, and, you know, when I was in juvie, I didn't get one visit from anybody for four months because my mom left British Columbia, my parents divorced and she moved back to Winnipeg. Mm. And my, my, my stepdad, you know, Harry Mueller, he's German. Um, he was working as a logger on, on the Haida Gwaii at the time. So he couldn't come and visit me. And so it was a very profoundly lonely experience going through the system at that time. You know, I was only 16 and, um, but it was also very formative because, you know, very early on when I got into juvie, I, I discovered a copy of Malcolm X's autobiography, which my mother had actually gifted me in my youth. Mm -hmm. um, you know, growing up, there were three civil rights leaders that my mother consistently quoted and found pathways to bring into my life. And that, of course, was Dr. Martin Luther King, of course, Malcolm X and, you know, Chief Dan George of Tisleewatut Nation. Um, you know, these are three individuals that were always, you know, characters that my mother would bring into my life, the words that they had shared. And so finding that book at the early stage in Juvia, I must have read that thing like 80 times. And I took it with me everywhere I went because I got transferred to a few different facilities across the province in that experience. Um and in juvie, you know, one of the things I observed was how horribly different they treated indigenous kids locked up comparatively to non-indigenous kids, to white kids. Mm -hmm. And how these like really screwed up like prison guards that worked in juvie used like white bullies to kind of keep the rest of the population subservient through fear and through violence and, um, you know, I saw a bunch of native kids get beat up, like, and put in the hospital while I was in juvie. And I just couldn't, I, I couldn't understand it. Um, and, uh, you know, for me, I didn't understand why people were getting so mad. And so by the time I got to the end of my sentence, I, I got sick of all of it. And I just, I, I, I started organizing with other native kids in the unit that I was in and you know, we made an agreement that we were going to stick together and that we were going to create a culture of peace in the unit. And so we devised a plan, you know, and we went against the bullies of the unit and 
and uh, you know, and 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 at the end of the day, for the for for about a month, my last month that I was there, there was no fighting or anything, mm-hmm. because we told the bullies, look, you know, if you're gonna go against one of us, then all of us are gonna get you, and mm-hmm. uh, but we don't want to get you. So from here moving forward, you know, we're we're gonna share things. You know, there there was one fancy chair in the TV room that the biggest bully of the unit would get every night during TV time. And we, we made a plan that everybody would get a turn on the chair and that it would be rotating. Right. And that was how the guards would create conflict and tension and fights was through little things like that. They would strategically create that. Like, why would there only be one chair with cushions and then plastic chairs for everybody else? Hmm. In it, You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it stands out in the book. I remember that very distinctly. Like, and the, what's interesting too in that section of the book is that you're not actually like the you don't ever sort of uh, tell the reader that you don't necessarily like what you just said. You don't provide that interpretation, but what you do say is that the solidarity that you created mm-hmm. um, produced peace and and an end to agitation, but that that upset the officers that that was aggravating. Oh yeah. That to me is so telling. Right. Um, and, and what you're saying here is that there was actually like, there was a strategy of creating division, um, Mm -hmm. and creating conflict as a means of keeping people kind of pacified in some sense through fear and violence. Yeah. You know, and, 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 and it was just, it was just really crazy to be, you know, um, how that, how it was set up in there. And of course, you know, later on in life, when I became a community organizer here in Winnipeg doing gang intervention work, um, you know, I did a lot of work with members of the Native youth movement, um, you know, going and doing workshops um, in Stony Mountain Prison, um, you know, and Headingley Prison here in Manitoba, in the Manitoba Youth Center. You know, this is back in the 90s during the gang epidemic here in Winnipeg, which not has not got better up till this point. Um, but I got to work with a lot of lifers and uh, work with a lot of programs here in the inner city that were all about, you know, helping lifers and felons, you know, with community reintegration that was culturally, you know, cushioned mm-hmm. and culturally relevant to them as they integrated back into the community. And, you know, a big part of that was, was you know, a big part of why I went into that work was because, you know, my first job when I got out of juvie was working in, for my older brothers who started the largest native gang in the country, the Manitoba Warriors, mm-hmm. which originally was supposed to be like the American Indian Movement, a community reintegration program so that felons could get jobs as security officers working at powwows or at indigenous community events. Um, but then it, you know, it grew into what it what it what it became, which was a you know a organized crime entity, mm-hmm. um, fortunately, and you know um, you know I did that for a couple of years, but eventually you know when my older brother John, you know he sat me down one day and he said you know Clay uh, the heat's coming down and I can tell and I'm going to move back up north to Puck and I'm going to go hunt moose. I'm going to get married. I'm going to have a bunch of kids and I'm going to fish just like our dad. And I'm never coming back to the city. Hmm. And, he said, and I, I don't think you should, you know, waste your life doing this either. I think you're smart and I think you should get an education and I think you should do something to help our people. And, uh, and I said, <clears throat> shit, man, 
you know, we, we got in a fight actually. And I, I was like, who are you to tell me what to do? You know? And, right. and he said, you know, I've always respected you as a man, my boy, but this is the one time I'm going to, you're going to respect my will be, as your big brother. And mm-hmm. it was really interesting, you know, because the next day, the, the mother of my sons, Corinne, you know, we were dating at that time. I was, you know, just only, I think, 18. And she says to me, you know, I, I really like you and I really like want to keep dating with you and be with you. But uh, I didn't sign up for this gangster shit. Mm-hmm. And uh, you need to get, you know, you're, you're a smart guy. You, you need to go to school or something. And so, you know, I did, you know, I, 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 I talked to my uncle Brian, who was the president of the gang at the time. And, and I told him flat out, I said, you know, I, 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 I want your permission to leave my work. You know, at the time I was running a drug house for the, the Manitoba warriors. And, and, uh, and I said, I want to go to school, man. I want to do something for my people. And he said, oh, okay. Well, yeah, you know, I'll let you do that. But, you know, he, he grabbed me by my wrist, eh, really, really with a firm grip. And he said, but I'll tell you something, okay? And I said, what's that? And he said, if I find out you're hustling on the side while you're going to school, I'm going to fucking kill you. <laughs> wow. I, it was fucking, it was really haunting, eh? <laughs> yeah. You've got a couple moments like that in the book, right? Like these, a description of like really forceful confrontations, like, um, the confrontation at Sundance with the cut man stands out, you know, oh, this yeah. now, you know, better intervention yeah. where you get poked in the chest hard and it's supposed to make this kind of impact. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, like the, there's this like push and pull, there's this like dance in the book around masculinity where like, as you say, like during the period running the drug house, like you were high on the power that came with it and the position oh, sure. and all that stuff. Um, but, but you narrowly avoided like this is sort of how part one of the book ends. You narrowly avoided this like mid nineties anti-gang legislation and how the government, um, really cracked down in particular on in- indigenous gangs. Um, well, and like yeah. trying to make an example, right? Um, yeah. Sh- shortly after, literally yeah. weeks after I, I got myself out of that circumstance and I, you know, I, I moved in with my son's mother. We got our first apartment here in Winnipeg and, I signed up for an inner city program for at-risk, you know, indigenous teens, um, mm-hmm. where you could get your GED. They'd introduce you to ceremonies. It was called Anishinaabe Oweji. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I graduated from that program as valedictorian. Um, and then I, I, I went into another program called the Medicine Fire Lodge, which is this radical program mm-hmm. run by some hardcore OG activists in the city headed by uh, the late Larry Morissette, um, who is very well known here in Winnipeg, you know, and, and, and one of my mentors and, 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 and heroes growing up, to be honest, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and they designed, you know, it was a community development program where at the end of the training, you would, you know, be, you'd get a certification in community development um, from an Indigenous world and Cosmo view. Mm-hmm. Um, but you also get like a, like a, like a cash bursary. It was like 2,500 bucks, which at the time was big money. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and uh, if you did your own community development project. And so when I got out of that, you know, I, my, my project was I started an inner city youth organization called Aboriginal Youth of Initiative. And our focus, you know, was working with young people 
here in the city to try and get them out of the gangs and to provide, you know, decolonization support services, you know, so instead of pathways or pipelines to prisons, mm -hmm. you know, we were trying to build pathways to Sundance and to other ceremonies, you know, for mm -hmm. young people. Um, because most of us who had been part of the native youth movement, the social movement, political apparatus in the nineties, um, that was all of our experiences, you know, once we got exposed to language and ceremony and culture and a connection back to the sacredness of Mother Earth, you know, all of a sudden we had the headspace and the heart space to be able to start working not just on ourselves, but working to support other people who are trying to decolonize and get into a healthy life path. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, so it was a it was a pretty wild time, um, uh, you know, uh, then that led to, you know, quite a lot of incredible things. No, yeah, and and they're narrated in the book, and so in so many different like compelling ways. You were talking there about education, and that got me thinking about like this phrase that comes up a couple times in the book. This this notion of having a PhD in hustle. <laughs> yeah. I love this so much. Um, you know, you talk about the way that you acquire knowledge. So many times in the in the memoir, like through mentorship, uh, by gaining access to like course outlines and teaching yourself through them. Yep. You say that, you know, because of the rampant racism inherent in it, you never had faith in the Western education system. Um, and so it's like the book becomes this really powerful pitch for embracing a kind of informal education as an act of resistance. Mm -hmm. um, and so you're like you're speaking from like a. a not a credentialed place, but from like a street cred place as it mm -hmm. were. Um, and I, I guess like, I want to ask you like, how has that education in hustle, that kind of outsider self-education, all your experience putting together, you know, theories and practices and organizations, so indigenous led social movements, how has that enabled you to sort of see the patterns in society? Cause this is one thing that you say, like true knowledge really represents. It's not about like credentials. It's about really being able to see the patterns how is that related to this idea of like having a PhD in hustle? Well, I think it's a difference between, you know, college and university, right? It's, it's, mm. it's, it's, it's applied knowledge versus theory. Right. And, you know, at the end of the day, you know, I, I you know, it, it doesn't really matter if you've got a PhD in a particular topic, if you don't have relationships in community, um, you know, you're going to spend a lot of time building those relationships, I think, to do the work that your PhD is is specific towards. Mm -hmm. um, whereas, you know, when we move at this pace of community and we build things from the grassroots up um, and, you know, and we go together, you know, uh, uh, there's clarity and accountability mm -hmm. um, to what we're building and, you know, and shared, uh, I think, vision around goals and, and theories of change. Um, that said, you know, like, I love my academics. I love my friends <laughs> in academia. You know, they're awesome. Well, maybe not the anthropologists, but, you know. Um, <laughs> you can do without those. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, I know um, you mean, yeah. There's some radical but, anthropologists, but as a discipline, yeah. But I think that the point of, 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 of that that concept of PhD and hustle is that what I, what I noticed was that a lot of the skills that I acquired surviving and participating in gang culture and, and, and just living in the streets, being homeless, 
um, you know, a lot of the different experiences and, 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 and identities that I had throughout my life, I realized that those skills were highly transferable into professional kind of fields. Mm. And so, you know, managing relationships is something that I, I really learned how to do well, you know, being a drug dealer and kind of like, you know, uh, uh, being a hustler, you know, Robin stealing and surviving, you know, as, as a young indigenous person growing up in the inner city, you know, with no one, um, those skills really translated into working across social movements and, you know, working across different social movement organizations and pulling people together on the jagged intersections of our movement goals and our social movement sectors and trying to, you know, break down barriers and, you know, build up systems of accountability and transparency as we build the largest social movement in the history of humankind. You know, back in the 90s, when I was doing like gang intervention work and decolonization work, I didn't know that that was going to lead to where I am today, but it set the groundwork, you know, mm -hmm. for, for, for that. And the kind of radical, I think, honesty that I've always brought to the table um, because of my background um, being so informal, you know, for myself anyway, and it's gender day, eh? like, I don't think mm. indigenous women probably have the same experience I do, or, or, you know, those from the, the LGBTQ uh, community either. Um, I think it's different for everyone, but there's certainly shared experience in, in our collectiveness as indigenous peoples and how we relate to colonialism and how we undo it towards a pathway of, of reparations, truth and reconciliation. Mm -hmm. And I mean, like so much of it is about like unlearning as well. Like early in the book, you talk about, you know, I'll, I'll quote the book, like every native kid deals with being told that their people have disappeared, that they no longer exist. They're just a page in a social studies history book. Erasure. Like unlearning that. And you as you say, like um, keeping the ember of tradition burning secretly as a, as, as a source of, um, you know, uh, healing recovery, uh, that that's articulated really powerfully in the book too. I mean, like, yeah, you're like, what's interesting too, is like, this is something that, as you say, you're kind of trying to explain to a broad audience too, like it, as yeah. this means of kind of creating, um, you know, a different capacity for relating to one another. And I wanted to kind of like, uh, you know, talk about the mode of address, and who you're addressing and how that shifts in the book. Like, um, you know, there are times where you're clearly addressing like a settler audience asking mm -hmm. us to do these thought exercises of, you know, imagining Christmas being banned and how that mm -hmm. would hurt and like prompt you to reinvest in the meaning of that tradition if and when you were uh, allowed to, legally allowed to. And yeah. like, you know, like earlier in the book, and throughout your intended audience is maybe more obviously indigenous folks where you're like speaking in terms of what you're collectively fighting for, given that you're really, you know, hoping for this broad audience. I wonder if the book is actively trying to work toward an, a, like a less polarized world. I mean, some of the wisdom in the book is this knowledge that's been passed on to you. And you were mm -hmm. talking about like consent. Do you ever hesitate to share that knowledge? And, or is it about just like hoping it reaches as many people as possible and transforms kind of politics in this country and globally? Well, we can transform politics and, you know, the, our body of, you know, of, of politics, economics, the way we socialize, you know, mm -hmm. our connection to mother earth, we, you know, our connection to the cosmos, 
-hmm. we can do we can do that but that doesn't mean that indigenous peoples and more specifically like my own Cree people are going to share some of our you know things in our worldview and our cosmovision that are just for us Mm. you know there's shit that white people and other brown and black people and other indigenous peoples will never know (laughs) Mm -hmm. about our Cree ways and and that's okay you know Mm -hmm. nothing wrong with that um but what, what the book is definitely doing by asking the 60,000-foot question, what is it going to take for us to heal from colonialism, is I hope that it's spawning conversations at dinner tables and at workplaces, yeah. in parks, between people, you know, in online forums. Um, you know, to, 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 to talk, you know, you mentioned the word subversity, you mm-hmm. know, and, and I tend to be that way. You know, I'm a campaigner um, working to end the era of big oil. And a lot of the work I have to do is is very subversive, you know. Yeah. A lot of the communities I go into don't want to hear about, you know, how bad George Bush was. They just know that, you know, if a refinery gets built in their community, it's going to make the kids sick, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they don't care how it's tied to, you know, the Persian Gulf conflict or the geopolitics of China or Russia or any of that. They just know. You know, so you have to be very subversive to like trigger something inside of a human being so that they self-actualize why they want to put their body on the line to protect their community from this um, from this encroachment of an outside entity trying to profit off of Mm -hmm. polluting their environment. And, you know, with the book, you know, Life in the City of Dirty Water, I think uh, there's a lot in there which was meant to just trigger people towards conversation. And part of the whole three-dimensional storytelling universe of life in this city of dirty water includes a stage performance that I do, a 45-minute powerful multimedia stage performance, including live performance of you know, R&B and traditional drumming. I read from the book. I show video clips. I even blacken out the theater and play some audio from a hunting trip that my brothers and I were on in Thunderchild Cree Nation, where you can hear the crackling fire and the goose honking and flying overhead. Wow. And, uh, you know, I'd and love guide. to see that. Yeah. And, it, you know, I, I, I did it. I did one show in California at the Bioneers Conference, and I did one show here in Winnipeg at the West End, at the iconic West End Cultural Center. Mm-hmm. And I'm spo- I was supposed to do like this big North American tour. And, you know, the show is is followed by a one hour in-depth, you know, dialogue between the audience I, and I on this question, what is it going to take for us to heal? Mm-hmm. You know, what is it going to take for us to move through it? The only way through this is through it. Right. And, uh, you know, we can keep delaying and delaying and delaying, but Native people ain't going nowhere. It's our land, mm-hmm. you know. We're the big brothers and sisters here, you know, and everybody else, whether they like it or not, are the little brothers and sisters and they got to listen to us, you know, so. Come to Halifax, please come to, we need it here. We need that, (laughs) we need that like reckoning uh, in a, in a city of a very, very dirty grid uh, Mm -hmm. that, you know, has a, a, I think an underestimatedly toxic car culture Mm -hmm. Um, as attached as we are in some ways to the beauty of nature, I think it can be a kind of superficial attachment um, that kind of thrives in some ways on that, like on these distancing gestures, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it's, it's anyway. Well, the, um, long, ar- the long arm of Irving, you know, from yeah. New Brunswick, even into Nova Scotia is pretty terrifying. And, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, and, and, and funny story, I was 
at a, I was speaking at Dalhousie um, one time in Halifax and, you know, I, I asked people, I said, where's a place I can go down to the ocean, look at the water? And they said, mm. oh, uh, Pleasant Point, Pleasant Point. And I yeah, went, yeah. Oh, okay, okay. So I drove out there and and I saw that uh, that the trees were all broken from some kind of mega storm that had hit, a big climate storm, you know, was the way I was looking at it. And uh, and then I, I, I walked by, there was really nice manicured paved like walkway and there's these big ships in the harbor there coming in mm-hmm. and out. And I, and, 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 I, and I went down to the shoreline and, you know, I, I, I had been in British Columbia literally 24 hours prior and I, and I had offered tobacco and prayed and I washed my face with the water of the Pacific and I offered my tobacco into the water and I prayed for the Pacific Ocean. And then the next day, there I am in Halifax, you know, I had flown to do another speaking event. Mm-hmm. And I was, I went down to the water at Halifax at Pleasant Point and I, I walked by these two young, young guys, they were skateboarders mm-hmm. sitting there on a bench and they're, I think they might've been smoking a little ganja and they, they're looking at me like, what's this little, what's this guy doing? Mm-hmm. And then I, I, was, I started climbing down towards the water there, um, you know, by, by the, by where all the boats come in. And I went and prayed eh, to Gichi Manitou and to the ancestors, you know, for the people and the water and, <clears throat> offered my tobacco and then I I took that water and I washed it on my face and then all of a sudden I couldn't see and my face started burning and I started screaming I was like ah, <laughs> oh ah help I can't see and I could hear those two guys laughing at me like ha ha wow. and then I hear them skateboard off and I had to crawl up this rocky shoreline up to back to the to the water and finally my vision started coming back but my entire face was chemically burned wow. and then what somebody had told me uh was that that's where the big sewage outlet where halifax just dumps all their like literally right where i washed my face oh my <laughs> i'm trying God. to have this big indigenous sacred prayerful moment connect with you know oh. the, the Atlantic Ocean there in the Halifax at Pleasant Point Park. And, oh, my uh, gosh. Ended up almost blinding myself with the sewage of the city of Halifax. <laughs> you got a blast of the city of truly dirty water. <laughs> yeah. Where we externalize, right? This is what capitalism does. It's just like it's an externalizing machine. Um, and it just, yeah. yeah, just it just kind of belches this back out. Um, and, yeah, I feel like there is just like a really nasty separation um, yeah. between the infrastructure, these kind of invasive infrastructures and, um, a different sort of like cosmology entirely, uh, you know, and spice talks about, you know, in, indigenous infrastructure being about the sort of like, um, the great kind of web of life. Right. Um, and I don't, I feel like there just isn't really a conception of that here. Um, and that is like, you know, as, as funny and, and terrible as a story that is, that is, um, <laughs> It it is also in some ways like it's telling the story of like um, having to confront just like the everydayness of the toxicity that these skateboarders were just like, of course, you don't put your face in that water as beautiful <laughs> as it looks. It's just for looking at, <laughs> you know, what I mean? like, um, there's such a gap there. Yeah. And I guess like I wanted to kind of speak to that gap in a different way. Like you just had a conversation recently, a really interesting short conversation with Tom Hartman. Oh, yeah. Where, you know, Hartman expressed a lot of curiosity about your book's account of the winter spirit, which oh, is, yeah. you know, not something I, I know deeply, um, but is I mean, it's it's 
you know, I sort of sensed that Hartman was trying to translate this sort of story of the winter spirit into something that a westernized white settler could sort of wrap, wrap his head around. Mm-hmm. And I'm not throwing shade at Hartman. Like, you know, yeah. I'm also a symptom of that same culture that can't always see indigenous cosmology as irreconcilably different. As you say, there mm-hmm. are Cree stories that are just not going to, can't be uh, translated necessarily. Um, but what Hartman couldn't seem to get away from is this assumption that what the winter spirit means is that greedy people aren't really responsible for their greed. That like (laughs) greed is a symptom or a sickness that has almost like a supernatural origin. And I wanted to link this to a statement that you make uh, in the last part of the book, Mm -hmm. this idea that quote, nothing proves the way everything is connected like a pipeline. So you're like making this appeal to unity in the book, specifically when it comes to this existential threat of continued fossil fuel extraction. And if I'm reading you fairly, it feels like you're encouraging readers to kind of on some level move past polarization and, and realize there is, as you say in the book, not just good guys and bad guys in the climate fight, but like it seems to be a thing that like the eco-socialist left in particular is really invested in right now. The idea that developed nations like the U S are historically at fault for their unquenchable desire for energy, that the climate emergency has really been produced by the greed of Irving, by the greed of climate criminals like ExxonMobil or Chevron or Syncrude or Suncor. Um, You know, like it is the case that the people who are going to be hardest hit by climate impacts will be the most precarious, the people living with the fallout of uh, colonization. Um, But like, why did you want to at the same time convey the point that we need to maybe move beyond the vilification of climate criminals and understand ourselves as complicit and as in a system that perpetuates harm is the winter spirit just this kind of excuse for human greed or do you think we need to kind of like identify the actual you know criminal sources of you know profiteering off of just like the you know pollution of the planet yeah well i think that you know th- there is no one answer you know yeah I, yeah yeah i i wrote about the winter spirit and I reference it and I think about it in my life path, you know, and, and, and what I tried to share with Tom is that, you know, uh, you know, we, we, we grew up, you know, I grew up with this story, you know, about my great grandfather who fought a wheat to goo. And mm. after he fought that wheat to goo, he became very, very sick and his hair actually turned white. And, you know, he, he couldn't hunt or fish all summer. Mm-hmm. and had big repercussions on our family. There's a lot more to that story that I don't share. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But the point of it is, though, is that, you know, we're warned in the wintertime not to go out and 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 it, when the snow is flying sideways because that's when the winter spirit can get you. And, you know, on a deeper level in ceremony, you know, we're told that only the strongest can go and fast you know, as Cree people, we, we have a spiritual practice of fasting in the spring, summer, fall and winter, uh, you know, for four days and four nights without food or water as a way to, you know, seek out guidance in our life to get blessings, to be, become stronger. Um, but it's said that, you know, it's very dangerous to fast in the winter time because, you know, that's the winter spirit can get you, you know. 
And, you know, I think that Witigu, much like a lot of things, you know, in our cosmology, you know, these interdimensional spiritual beings, you know, they're metaphors, eh, in terms of how to take heed and to be humble and, you know, to walk your life as lightly as possible where you live. Um, and we have seven sacred teachings that guide us through that process. Um, and so I think that like a lot of people are going to take their own interpretation of that. And that's my goal. Right. Is that is that it agitates and it creates like a, it makes people think about it. But, you know, on a on a very hyper hyper meta level, you know, the, the winter spirit metaphor to me represents, you know, imbalance on a global scale and what it can what it what it can what it can turn into, which is predatory economics mm. and the destruction of our planet's ability to sustain us. Uh, in less than 150 years. I mean, we're literally, as human beings, changing the chemistry of Mother Earth, you know, mm. our one home in the universe. And so, you know, I think for me, you know, Wittigu is a metaphor for capitalism and a metaphor for the sickness of greed that exists. But greed is not Wittigu, you know. Mm. Wittigu exploits the sickness of greed and, you know, is one of those things that can fill the emptiness that lives inside of us because of a disconnection to nature. You know, right. that's one of the greatest impacts of climate, of, uh, of capitalism and colonialism is a disconnection to nature um, and, yeah. and, and a hyper individualism, hyper consumerism and, you know, a, you know, all kinds like a few different systems that end up separating us from this identity identity as the collective and rather that makes us a hyperized individual. And I think that technology also adds to that. Mm. And, you know, um, but, 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 you know, meanwhile, human beings are reporting being the most lonely that we've ever been in the history of human beings, even with all this connectivity. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the, the, the Wittigu is a metaphor, you know, that, imbalance left unchecked can lead to, you know, potentially a, a, a global scenario that ends our ability as human beings to live on the planet. And the teachings and in traditional ecological knowledge that Indigenous peoples have been trying to share with, you know, our brothers and sisters across these lands they call Canada can help address some of that. I don't think it's the only solution that mm -hmm. can address climate change and some of the other imbalances we face, you know, like toxic masculinity, patriarchy. Um, I think that it's going to take a hybrid mix of Western science, you know, um, traditional ecological knowledge and straight up, you know, magic to do hmm. that. But, you know, as I mentioned, the only way through it is through it. And, uh, you know, we don't have to recreate the wheel. We have all of the teachings from press social movements to, you know, do what we have to do, you know, which is to build the largest social movement in the history of humankind, to mobilize human beings and governments to, you know, in, you know, to intervene at a mass scale uh, and to, you know, transition away from fossil fuels. You know, we absolutely need to do that. And mm -hmm. we need to take a look at these systems, you know, whether it's our fossil fuel centered uh, truck and transport system, our fossil fuel intensive agricultural complex. I think the biggest one of all the military industrial complex, but also urban planning. 
Yeah. Um, you know, absolutely. You look at all of these systems, and you know, and and that's where I had an issue with with Hartman's analysis of the Witegu of what I was trying to articulate or create a metaphor for people. You know, are 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 not responsible in the way that they think they are for climate change. Okay. Um, you know, I think it's good for people to be environmentalists, to be conservationists, uh, to walk as lightly on the earth as they can, to, you know, promote that within their family and their community and their place of work and their place of worship. Mm -hmm. However, there's about 70 or so companies um, that are almost 99% responsible for the world's uh, 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 for the for, for existential threat of climate change, you know, and then the you know the other player in that, of course, is 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 the U.S. military, and 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 the entire military industrial complex. You know, they're, they're the biggest polluters on the planet. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if we get away from 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 you know, if we if we focus our social movement oomph, our people powered movements, on changing these these vital systems. Um, you know, uh, 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 to, to move away from fossil fuel to, you know, that that strategy, you know, to be rooted, uh, you know, in the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples and that we'd be taking notions, especially in Canada, in our Canadian economy, that, you know, we take into consideration this idea of, of reparations, you know, towards truth and reconciliation. Because Indigenous Peoples, you know, the only reason that we have a lot of problems in this country, to quote the late chief Arthur Manuel from Sequoia Nation, um, you know, he said it best. He said, you know, you got to stop crying on the shoulder of a guy who stole your land. You know, indigenous peoples control less than nine, uh, less than one percent of Canada's land mass. And that's why we're cash poor. You know, mm. that's why we don't have money. It's because we have no land base. And, you know, at the end of the day, you know, when we hear that word land back on our social media platforms, it literally means that, you know, mm -hmm. land back. And that's what native people, I think, across the country, I don't want to speak for everybody at all. But, you know, when it comes right down to it, um, land back, you know, is all about um, us you know, having the ability to build out our economies in a way that suits us, that matches our worldview and our cosmovision. Um, and that isn't, you know, and that our affairs are not meddled with by, you know, colonizers. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, we have some way to go to get there, but I have great faith in the youth movements of today. They are so sophisticated and their analysis is so much more intersectional. Um, and the fear that they carry seems to be so much less than previous generation, even my generation, you know, we carried a lot more fear than these young people do today. Mm. And, uh, like fear of shaking things up in just a sense, fear, you know, just fear right across the board. Right. Oh, but I think that young people today are armed with information and, you know, like, like I, when I was a teenager, we didn't even have cell phones. Mm -hmm. It was like a rich person thing. Um, you know, and uh, I mean, I, I remember getting my first Hotmail. It was 1995. I was, I was yeah, I still have my Hotmail address. <laughs> I lost mine. I'm so sad about it. But anyway. <laughs> but no, yeah, things have radically changed. 
Let me just say, uh, I, I, I can't believe, you know, how wonderful this book is. And I'm so excited to see the ways in which it's like spawning these other beautiful things that are um, going to be in the world for people to think through. And like, I love what you just said about sort of, you know, how, you know, these things are metaphors, but they're also real that they're, yeah. you know, it's both things. They're both, you know, material and symbolic. They're, they're language, but they're also, you know, material demands. Um, so there's just so much that's hopeful in what you were just saying. Um, and I appreciate you making the time today. Yeah, no, it's a real pleasure to be here. And, you know, I really want to appreciate the listeners. And, you know, if people want to learn more about the work that I do, please follow 350 Canada on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook. Join our Facebook group. And if you want to learn more and stay in touch on future events related to life in the city of Dirty Water, a memoir of healing, just follow me on Twitter or on IG. I'm on all the social media platforms, my own individual account. Mm -hmm. um, or you can sign up for my mail list at lifeinthecityofdirtywater.com.